UX Podcast Episode 121. Hello, dearest listener. This is UX Podcast, hosted by me, Pat Axbom. And me, James Roy Lawson. We're balancing business technology and users every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. You you sang that a little bit this week. Yeah, I'm in a good mood. <laughs> all right. Yeah, because all the other 120 episodes, we've been in bad moods. <laughs> so. <laughs> wow, everything is black and white, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing on a scale of one to seven. <laughs> Uh, so, as uh, some of our listeners may be aware, we've partnered uh, again with the UXLX conference taking place in Lisbon, Portugal, uh, May 24th to 27th. It's now a four-day conference with some top-notch speakers and workshops. And last time we interviewed Melissa Perry about UX and product management. And today it's time to interview Chris Nossel. Yeah, and when um, I think when this episode is going to be published, um, we'll be about 80 days away from um, UXLX. Yep. So, time to get that ticket. So, who's Chris Nossel? I mean, we've interviewed him before. We've interviewed him yeah. um, on two occasions. Yeah. Um, the first time was um, way back in October 2012, um, which was episode 25. Um, and that was, in, that was in connection with um, when his book, um, Make It So, um, had just been released. I mean, he co-authored that with Nathan Shedroff as that, well. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was a that was a wonderful little chat and geeky, geeky sci-fi chat. Very nerdy chat. That is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I loved it. But I loved it too. And then um, the second time we talked to him was about a year and a half ago. In equally um, nerdy. Uh, yeah, it was um, November two thousand fourteen. Uh, episode two, episode eighty six. Redesigning Star Wars. Now this is when um, Chris had come to Stockholm to to do a test run or first ever run of his workshop um, called Redesigning Star Wars where we made use of science fiction as a tool to, to help us um, in solving design problems in the real world. This was like a spin-off on the back of well, it's, I suppose it's a, it's a thread, isn't it? It's connected with the, the research and the work with um, mm. Make It So that led to this mm. idea of doing a workshop. Mm. Um, I guess the, the, the journey is continuing for Chris. Um, yeah, he's moved on. He's, he's talking about stuff that I haven't really heard about before. Agentive technology. I'm not even sure how you pronounce it. I think it's mm-hmm. some. It's a phrase that he's coined himself. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's from what I've gathered, mm-hmm. it's to do with um, artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, or at least the, um, the 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 weak weak AI or the the narrow AI. Yeah. Um, which most things we come into contact, in fact, everything we come into contact with, I believe, is. Mm. But I don't really know. I've I've just <laughs> yeah. I've just read the, a bit before we start. But, but if you know, if if Chris Nossel is talking about it, it it's really important and it's uh, something to do with the future. Because uh, if you, I, I want to mention, if you really want to understand how how much of a backbone in the UX community Chris Nossel is, he was actually also uh, more recently involved in co-authoring the fourth edition of uh, the classic UX Bible about face which is the go-to book for reading about stuff like personas. Uh, let's uh, hear what he has to say about agentive technology. I don't know where to start off, actually. Do you have any ideas, James? I think we started talking about in the end show with uh, agentive technology and where you've, where you've moved along. From, well, you've been so many years in the business, and you've moved uh, into so many different wide areas of UX, uh, but you... You're sort of mostly famous from when we've talked to you about with, with the sci-fi interfaces uh, and the Make It So book and the Redesigning Star Wars workshop uh, that we enjoyed so much. <laughs> uh, and now you're talking about something called agentive technology. Am I even saying that right? Well, uh, folks are saying it both ways, yeah. and it is sort of this ancient English adjective that I'm trying to rescue uh, for good reasons. Okay. Um, I say it agentive because the core word is the agent or the agency that you're sort of granting. Okay. Um, but to your point, actually, it does have a connection to uh, sci-fi and the, some of the work that I've done in sci-fi. Mm. I first began to think about this um, because of a, a scene from Firefly. Okay. So oh, yeah. you guys are very familiar with um, the show. And yes. 
in the pilot episode, and actually not even the, just the pilot episode, the very first scene of the pilot episode, Mal is defending Serenity Valley from incoming ships, and he hops up onto a, an anti-aircraft weapon, and he grabs the controls, and he has this heads-up display in front of him. And on that heads-up display, there are two different crosshairs, two different reticles. Um, one reticle, it's, it's easy to tell just by looking at it, is telling you where the weapon will fire. And then the second one is obviously computer-generated and is telling Mal where the bad guy is. And as the audience, we understand what his job is. It is to get reticle one onto reticle two and then pull the trigger. Well, and that certainly works from an audience perspective. But from a real-world perspective, you have to ask, if this weapon knows where the bad guy is, why is it waiting on Mal to move it? <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 If it knows exactly where he is, it should be doing mm -hmm. the moving. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and uh, that thought had stuck with me since I saw that pilot and I was reviewing Firefly. Um, and uh, since then, I've been taking a look at that notion of, oh, when computers do things for us on our behalf, when do we grant them agency to do the things that we don't want to do or aren't really good at doing um, or that we've yeah, just never done before? Mm. So it's different from artificial intelligence. Well, it's actually really interesting because mm. it's um, there. Uh, there are three sort of broad categories of artificial intelligence that are talked about mm. in the literature. Um, the first one that most people think about when they hear AI is, oh, a machine intelligence that's just like a person's intelligence. Yeah. Mm, um, yeah. And that, that category is called artificial general intelligence. So this would be like the, this would be like the, the, the HAL kind of um, AI that we know from sci-fi. Yes, HAL is very much the, the, the best model for artificial general intelligence, with the exception that he's evil. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's like Hal is uh, a little slow, slower speaking, um, but otherwise is pretty much just another member of the crew with access to cameras everywhere and the microphones everywhere and control of certain parts of the ship. Um, when we give the task of creating a new artificial intelligence to an artificial general intelligence, the notion is that they will build something much bigger, much better than themselves. And over time, that AI will build a new AI, and eventually we'll get to something that <clears throat> is so far out there uh, that its intelligence will be to our intelligence what our intelligence is to an ant, oh. right? Where it's, where it's thinking things that we don't even have the biology to think. Mm. Now, now I think of the classic scenes from um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Douglas Adams, where, where <laughs> Deep, Deep Thought um, says that, you know, talking about the machine that comes after... Oh, deep thought because he's not worthy enough of being even talking about mm. it because he, he's the one that's going to design it but he won't actually be it because it's so much more clever yeah exactly exactly <clears throat> so and that one and you can kind of think of the the off-screen version of samantha from the movie her mm. are a, a category that we call artificial super intelligences mm. <clears throat> and in fact uh sci-fi refers to the 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 onset of artificial superintelligence as the singularity because we really don't know what life looks like after that point, mm. right? We have really mm -hmm. good concepts of what life is like with humans in the world. So the notion of an artificial intelligence that is general just requires us to imagine that embodying a car or on our phone or on a television. But superintelligence is by definition something we can't comprehend. So that's the second category and probably a, a genuinely scary category of artificial intelligence. Um, but there's a third category, um, but we have to actually come back to our own time, and that's called artificial narrow intelligence. And a narrow intelligence is distinguished as something that's very smart, something that can learn and infer, but that can't generalize its knowledge. If you'll remember the movie uh, War Games, yes. the yeah. big computer there is called Whopper, and the big yeah. plot spoiler is that Whopper l learns to infer from the game of tic-tac-toe, which is a game that no one can win, and generalizes that knowledge for his primary task mm. of global thermonuclear war. 
because um, he's his job is to manage that the the weapons and the responses. Yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of like it's when you do like um, oh, a plus a plus b equals c. I mean, you're, you're inferring a third thing from two other component parts that don't directly equal the thing that you're imagining. Exactly, and so artificial narrow intelligence can't do that, mm-hmm. and that's why it's not called general because it can't generalize its information. So artificial narrow intelligence is in the world today. Um, and it's uh, just really, it's the evolution of really smart software. And I break that down into sort of two parts. There are, there's an assistive narrow intelligence, which are things that help you in real time with a task. Uh, TurboTax is a pretty good real world example of that, where you have a task to fill out your taxes and you have an assistant who will help you answer your questions, guide you to the next step, deal with some of the tricky problems that you've got. Um, And then there is the other category, which is doing things on your behalf while your attention is elsewhere. Um, uh, A couple of sort of first world examples usually help people get it. Um, The first is the Roomba vacuum cleaner. Every vacuum that happened before Roomba was focused on the typical problems of interaction design. Um, Let's make the handle ergonomic. Where do we put the switch to turn the thing on? Um, Let's put a light in the front so that you can see the thing that you're sweeping. How do I lock and unlock the handle? All those are fine because it's meant to engage a human who is doing that task. The Roomba is an agent of solution. Mm. It tries to say, well, how can we get this goal met for you without your actually having to do it while you're paying attention to other things? So with the Roomba, you set it up, set it on its little charging cradle, and then it goes about cleaning the floors for you at whatever specified time you've asked it to. And it'll complain if it gets stuck in a corner or if it doesn't know where, what to do or if it can't find the charging stations. But I'd say about 85% of the time, my Roomba can find its charging station um, and work perfectly, perfectly well. Mm. And then my only maintenance is to come in and empty that dustbin. And that's different. If you can think about the Roomba and the Dyson vacuum cleaner, for instance, as being similar things, but they're clearly not the same. In a similar sense, there's a camera um, that's actually out of Sweden there with you guys (laughs) called the Get Narrative. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, I have one. Okay, (laughs) I I love it. Um, And in a similar sense, this is a camera unlike any camera that's come before it, right? From the early days of cameras all the way up until the fancy DSLRs that we have today, right? You have all these controls to either try and make it super easy for a human to take a photo, or it has a lot of controls to make it powerful for a human who wants a lot of control. But that human is still necessarily part of the equation. Contrast that with the narrative. And the narrative, you just unplug it, and as long as it sees light, it takes a picture every 30 seconds of whatever's in front of its little lens. And then at the end of the day, those two very powerful algorithms work. The camera sends all of its photos up to the cloud. It breaks it into the scenes across the day and picks the most representative or best photo from each of those scenes and sends it to your phone to say, hey, what do you want to do with these? And that's a camera unlike any other camera before, whereas the earlier camera for all the cool tech that can be applied to it, it's still assistive. It still Mm -hmm. has you with your eye in the viewfinder. And the narrative just says, well, how do I get them great pictures, even if they're not taking pictures? And they come up with this beautiful, beautiful device. Mm. So long answer to your question was (laughs) that AI is a big, broad spectrum. But the ones that are in the world today can be thought of and the the things that most people think of are assistive. uh, And I'm turning my camera towards that other category of thing called agentive, partially because I think it's new um, and that's exciting, um, but partially because I think there's you know time is a limited resource for humans and if you have some technology that helps you take advantage of your time better uh, then it will allow us to do a lot more with our lives where's where's the line then between say um algorithms and and ai or or um agentive agentive um, technology algorithms a lot of what we would maybe consider to be um, well, artificial intelligence are probably at the end of the day just a just a simple algorithm. There's no self-learning. There's no kind of self-improvement. I guess, not directly. When I think of algorithms, I I I think of 
basic functions inside of a program. Uh, it's a building block. And to speak of agent of technologies, to speak of, you know, not just a brick, but okay, what's the building that that brick has made? How does it function? What, how do we use that building? Um, mm. And an algorithm, certainly when we think about it, we think of them being super smart. But I think that a basic hello world algorithm is probably counts under that definition. Yeah. I think what, what, what I was thinking of here now is, is say, Google search which we talk about as being you know, the search algorithm. We, we have that box on Google. We write something in and an answer comes out or, or we speak it, you know, Siri-like. Um, but Google are, are trying to be kind of smarter and smarter by giving you answers um, you know, before you go off to another web page, the knowledge graph and, and those kind of instant answers you see in the results. So I think that's what's that made me think about whether that's an algorithm still or whether it's gone across into something else. Uh, it's a great example, in fact, um, because I, I do think that Google search is incredibly powerful for being such a, a simple thing, as you mentioned, a box mm. that you type a phrase into and click enter. Um, and it gets it right so often. And we know because we use language and understand how complicated that is for a computer to understand how how well it is that Google is doing its job. But if I had to put it on, in the narrow artificial intelligence spectrum, I would say it's certainly assistive. You have a question, you bring that question to Google, Google answers that question really well. Mm. Google does have another product called Google Now, which I would mm. categorize as much more agentive. Google Now will do things like watch your calendar, watch your emails, and let you know things about, hey, if you wanna make it to that concert on time, that I see in your calendar. Mm. I'm also watching the traffic and can see that things are starting to back up and you need to leave in the next five minutes. Mm. So it'll buzz, Mm. it'll buzz you and let you know that, Mm. uh, that to me is much more of, um, uh, an agent who's working on your behalf. I I've had to try and go out and find some, you know, or, or craft some sort of definition to help distinguish things. And one of the things that uh, makes sense to me to distinguish them, is that an agent necessarily watches a data stream at the very minimum, like Mm. a clock, um, and then watches for triggers. When this happens, then that happens. Then I will do my thing for you. Uh, And then there are a whole lot of other subsequent things like, oh, I need you to help me resolve this this problem because I'm not 100% confident Mm. in it, or I've genuinely hit a problem that I can no longer resolve. Mm. I think more powerful agents watch more data streams and have more sort of complicated behaviors and triggers. But the Google Now is a really great example because it watches a lot of things at once. Um, and I think a lot of people ha- are experiencing it quite directly. Right. Yeah. I, I guess here, though, that's Google Now is kind of um, a preemptive version of search or data. You've got like Google, just you search for something, you know, you're the one that's taking the action. You're going in there, searching for something, getting an answer. Mm. Whereas with Google Now, as like you say, it's a combination of several data streams which then is used to help do something or present something to us before we realize we need it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. which is new, right? The, the only place we've been able to turn for that, uh, I think, in the, in the past are twofold. One, humans. And in fact, when I, I think about what is the right model for an agent of technology, um, I, I think that a, a butler or a valet, um, that when I look for... Uh, the analog to an agent prior to the advent of this kind of technology, uh, there are only really two places for it. The first is humans. So humans who are able to think about someone else and say, oh, I think they're going to be interested in this um, and I should contact them and let them know. Um, And the first place my brain goes, maybe because of Downton Abbey, is the butler or um, a valet, right, Mm. who is working behind the scenes in order to uh, make things happen the way they're supposed to happen and approach the, 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 the house. What are they called? I don't want to call them master. That sounds so horrible. Oh, um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. God, what do we You're say? You're British, not... James. You should know this. <laughs> yeah, but it, but, but it would be the, it would be the master of the house or the yeah. lady of the house. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking for throwing ourselves back to kind of Downton Abbey <laughs> stuff, then it, then it would be the, the, the lady of the house, the master of the house. It's awkward and weird to use that word, but we'll use it um, <laughs> to, you know, come to the master of the house with problems or to ask if there's anything else that's needed. Mm. Um, the second place are simply, uh, then there 
kind of n- not the right place, but certainly we have people who have extended uh, uh, this one's I, I've just thought this one, so I'm not as eloquent with it. Um, but uh, astronomers, for instance, will have worked out the routines for when you can expect planets to rise on the horizon and set on the horizon um, or certain celestial events. Um, and so that's not really coming to find you, but it's certainly setting out in the future so that you don't have to work it out yourself. References and materials are kind of that thing. Um, but n- even after I say it, I want to come down off of it um, because that's not the same thing, right? If you have a reference material, that's quite assistive. Mm. So because it's using it, it's only useful while you're paying attention to it. So then that takes us back to sort of the, the butler as the great model for what an agent was in prior times. Mm. There might be one other, uh, and this might come from my Texas background, but uh, I also think of uh, horses who have been um, broken to be able to ride. I recall fondly of, of stories where a horse a rider could fall asleep on a horse and the horse would still take them home, for instance. Right. Or in movies, you might have like a really drunk cowboy lazily climb onto the horse and the horse would head home. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a nice piece of agentive uh, service, right? Mm-hmm. The horse knows where you need to go and that's okay. I got it. You can you can sleep the rest of your drunk off. Mm-hmm. So it's helping found... you when you're not when you're not actually doing having to do something yourself. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's the power of mm-hmm. it. I wonder if the um, one of my one of my favorite things at the moment is the uh, Spotify Discover Weekly, um, which which where Spotify has a playlist that it generates every Monday morning um, of of new songs for you to listen to, um, and I, I, I think this probably does fit in with agentive uh, um, technology because what the, what Spotify is doing here is looking at not only my my play data my, my song data. But it's also looking at their entire data for all people using Spotify and looking for common patterns and saying, okay, well, you know, this, this group of people, they, you know, they listen to these bands that you do, but they also listen to this other band that you never listen to. How about you try that? So it's, it's serving me with songs that it's, it's guessing that I'll like. So I don't, bother, I don't have to kind of look myself for, for, for new songs. And it's really, really good. Yeah, and really powerful. I, I fully agree that that is a great piece uh, of agent of tech. And it reminds me of another of my favorites. Have you heard of Chef Watson? No. So Watson is IBM's big AI oh, yeah, that they've been working on for decades. Mm-hmm. And the, right after it won Jeopardy, they were asking themselves, well, what do we do next with this mm-hmm. tech? And so they've spun it off in a number of different directions. And the one that I know of that's gone public is called Chef Watson. And it consists of a couple of parts. The first part is Watson just goes out on the Internet, finds every recipe that it can find, and then takes note of it and does a bit of semantic analysis around it. And what they're able to do then is what a lot of other different recipe databases have been able to do, which is I say I have a blood orange – what can I make with this? But then it does a couple of things that none others before can do. It will certainly give you recipes, um, but it will let you optimize them for Eastern or Western cooking. Um, specifically, which means that in the West, we tend to maximize the presence of particular chemical compounds. Um, and in the East, they tend to balance those chemical compounds. So you can say, sure, find me a recipe for the blood orange, um, but let's try an Eastern cooking algorithm in order to find those recipes. That kind of sounds simple because it might be um, predefined within the recipe, but it's not true. Um, It can actually tell you that, oh, some things you think are Western are actually more Eastern in in style, and some things that are uh, more Eastern in style are actually more Western. Mm. But then the really cool thing that it does um, is it drifts those recipes. Uh, and that's my verb, not theirs. Mm. But by drifting, they say, okay, well, the recipe that I – or they, I'm sorry. It's an algorithm. Let's, I mean, it's an AI. Let's talk about it as it. It says, well, the recipe that I'm drawing from says that you should use hazelnuts. Oh, that's a category of nut with these particular chemical compounds. Let's go find another nut with those same sim- chemical compounds. Let's try that same recipe with uh, pine nuts or walnuts or you know, garbanzo beans, it can sort of, uh, you can turn that dial from 
uh, randomize it just a little bit or drift it a whole lot to give me something super crazy. And the cherry on top of it all is that Watson looks at the new recipe that it has created and guarantees that it has never delivered that recipe before. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, and then you can sort of, uh, there's a whole community about people who are trying these recipes. I've tried a couple. Um, and then when they find really cool new solutions, new recipes, they should then share them back and they do a social approval because of course Watson can't taste his randomized yeah, he's got to look for a he's got to look mm. for a data stream to confirm mm. its 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 hypotheses that it thinks that this one's going to taste ah, good. Yeah, exactly. But on the whole, what it's doing is it's helping people find new food, and that to me is just amazing. Similarly to the way that Spotify is helping you find new music, but yeah, we're also becoming just... tools for the AI because we're like the tasters. Uh, of past t- tasting stuff for the AI so that it can learn. So we're testing if it's poisonous or not for it. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Yeah, there's a bit of a yeah, there's a potential moral hazard there. Mm. It's kind of like, well, we, we'll we'll poison yeah, we'll poison those 300 mm. people. So then we know that one doesn't work. Mm. But these these 300, they're going to get the good stuff because we know it doesn't kill them. Mm. <laughs> oh, it's very similar to the uh, trolley problem that is facing another piece of agentive technology on the horizon, uh, which is the self-driving car. Are you, yeah, you guys have have you read the trolley problem? Not familiar with that phrase, trolley problem. No. So the trolley problem is a, a very interesting one, where um, the notion is that you're standing on a rail track, and in with a switch in hand, and an out of control trolley is rolling down the track, and you have the opportunity to switch it, um, to switch the trolley to another track where it might possibly hit one other person or a dog or. Uh, a bus full of people. Mm. And the question is, is it ethical to make the switch? And there are all sorts of permutations on this problem about, well, is it okay if it's a young child on one and an octogenarian on the other? Do you prioritize it based on age? Or do you prioritize it on, uh, is it okay to let the trolley kill someone mm. versus actually causing the co- the trolley to kill someone? Right. Um, and it's a great and very fascinating bit of ethics underneath that. But it's being uh, tested in the real world as we talk and think about driverless cars. When the driverless car is on the road and uh, a dog jumps out in front of that car, it's got, a, it's got a choices and some algorithms that, uh, algorithmic choices that it has to make. Mm. Is it going to kill a dog? Is it going to swerve at the risk of the passenger? Does it swerve into a pedestrian? Mm. It's got all these trade-offs that it has to make instantly. And so this notion of the trolley problem, which was sort of ethics and academic, um, is now very real for the people who have to program what will the car do in that instance. Right. And how much should you leave up to the user as well? I mean, is that a setting when you get into the car if we're more than one person in the car, do this. If it's only me, then kill me first over someone else. And if it's a dog, uh, run over it. If it's a cat, not, don't do it. Would I be able to control that as a user <laughs> if it's my car? <laughs> you're, you're too slow, Pat. <laughs> you, you, you're never going to be able to because your, your reaction time is going gonna, is gonna to basically contaminate that entire process to make it a disaster. And no, I'm think, saying think... that my setting is – I'm setting that before I get into the car, before oh, I drive. Oh, you mean like that? So that's you settings some when I buy the car. How do you want to – like those are extras for the car. <laughs> Well, that's like, but that's like getting on board a spaceship and saying, I, I want evil Hal and not good yeah, Hal. Yeah, exactly. And what's, what's I mean, evil and good? It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's personal that's preferences. That's really interesting, and yeah. That's difficult. And, and it's an interesting question, um, not just for us as riders, but as a culture. Um, what, do we, what will we allow Google to write? What, how, how are we comfortable with that algorithm? And like, how does the notion of insurance respond mm. to that algorithm? Um, and like we, we have to ask very awkward questions about, well, what do we value and what do we want to put into code that we value as a culture mm. if we have to make real life trade-offs between A, B, and C? And it's, yeah. those are ugly things. We've, we've always been able to deal with them in the abstract or look back and reflect on them. But to actually encode them uh, is a new thing for us. I think, yeah, I think isn't, isn't part of the solution here maybe that um, with uh, with a, well, I'm not going to say infinite amount of data, but with a, with a large amount of data, that you can get the number of scenarios where something nasty will happen down to such a small uh, you know, likelihood of occurrence that the question vanishes. I mean, if we're looking at the, some of the, the the data that Google have been releasing to do with their cars, 
they've got they've got so good at predicting situations that they can they can with their radars and sensors and stuff they can maybe see a car uh, or say like there's a motorbike coming from a certain direction at a certain speed and they can see it quite a long way away a lot further away than you as a driver would ever be able to they slow down in advance because they can see it coming and avoid the situation so that it never comes to the point of do we crash into the cyclist or the bus because well we actually know there's going to there would be an accident here so we we do something about it yeah and ideally that's that's what where we're going to head where especially if the motorcycle is being controlled by a uh, uh, similar ai they just talk to each other right mm. or they talk to the traffic conductor ai and the traffic conductor says yeah you need to slow down right that'd be su- the mm. most ideal mode um but speaking here as i am in california mm. uh, i can tell you that an earthquake will upend those decisions very quickly um or mm. any natural disaster where suddenly you know the ai's best plan uh, is now thwarted and it's up to the individual atomic objects in the system to decide what to do mm. um and those are going to be ugly and sudden and we're going to have lots of data around it to analyze it in retrospect but in the moment um, it won't matter what our best intentions were. Yeah. So if we think about the the, the challenges for us as as designers um, and and how we can what we can do about this, um, what what are those? What, what's facing us directly? Well, I think the first thing is that we are going to have to shift the scenarios of use because the notion of designing for a tool, as we've codified over the last say thirty years are things like affordances, constraints, um, you know, what are the outputs, how do we signal the state of the system to the user such that they know what their next step is mm-hmm. in accomplishing a task. That's all well and good, and we'll even be using some of that. But moreover, um, with an agent, you have uh, an agent doing most of the work. So your uh, work is going to be on, well, how do we convey what this particular agent can do? How do we find out the way that a user wants the agent to do its work. And that can be explicit, like the settings that we were talking about moments before, mm. you know, which, which of the, um, uh, which, which of the kill algorithms mm. do I pick for this ride? Um, but it also implies some inferences like what you talked about with Spotify. Spotify just watches you. Um, and then it infers some things. Now the inference is never going to be 100% correct. So you also need mechanisms to be able to say, oh, I see your recommendations. Let me either decline or decline and tell you why I'm declining so that you can get smarter about things that you will recommend in the future. Um, so there's a whole set of, well, where do we get those preferences from? Um, <clears throat> then there's, of course, launching and pre-launching an agent, especially on things like the car or for medicine you kinda, or, or money. You kind of want to let it run for a little while and see if you trust its results. Um, I've called the pattern a hood to look under, um, right? Because when, if you imagine horseless carriages at first, people were like, well, what is this demon device? Um, and I want to look in and see if I trust it before I actually just plan my day around being able to get in it, start it up, and drive away. In a similar sense, we're going to have to do the same thing with agents is, well, let me see what it would do with my money, and then say, okay, I think we've got it right now. I'll pull the trigger and I'll actually give you the agency to do some investment or, you know, uh, take the remaining change from any purchase that I make and, and, and apply it to savings. Mm-hmm. Then once an agent is up and running, you've got a whole new slew of things. Uh, you've got to know that it's running, right? Uh, so Because if I came home and I got the sense uh, and my Roomba was just sitting there, I'd wonder, well, did it do its job today or not? And certainly you can look at the effects of an agent. Is my floor clean? Um, but in many cases, or the super long term, uh, you're not going to see those direct effects. So we need to signal that sense that it's working. Um, you have new use cases where the algorithm isn't 100% confident in what it's about to do. And for things like your health or your money, you're going to want it to interrupt you, just like a good butler, and say, hey, um, we've got a choice to make here. Um, here's what I recommend, but really I need to know what you want to do. Mm. Um, and then there are those problems when the Roomba gets stuck and our agents are just going to uh, wind up sort of crashing. And we have to have a way for the user to gracefully degrade that. There's a lot of talk right now with the Google driverless cars about, or I'm sorry, driverless cars in general, about whether or not the driver's seat faces forward or back. Mm. Back is safer 
And if you're not driving the car, why do you need to face mm. forward? But in the case of a graceful degradation, you need that you need to minimize the amount of time that it takes to literally just grab the wheel and steer it into a safe place. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a challenge. Plus, you don't want to feel sick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I ride Bart a lot and riding backwards, I, you, you get used to it fairly quickly. Um, and then there are a few other use cases where you want to pause or restart that agent. Um, there's even <laughs> one of the big problems about agents that keep working is the problem um, and the morbid problem of death. When their user dies, how do they know? How do you not get you know, notifications that a friend of yours who's died is their birthday because that hits the remaining humans pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are some uh, new scenarios that we have to attend to around telling that agent when to infer that it needs to stop and even, well, what does it do with the resources that it has been granted in that case? So all of those to me feel new and really particular to agents and give me as sort of a, a designer a lot of, to sink my teeth into. Uh, and the number of times I've been able to work on projects um, with this new technology, I've really enjoyed uh, the novelty of those problems. Wow. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's interesting because, yeah, cause you've, you've, you have to take affordance to a new level, but you also have to take trust to a new level because whereas you know when we're looking at uh, traditional technology there we you build up trust in order to, to dare to to take an action whereas here you've got to build up trust in order to to let that action go and 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 let the agent take care of it and then on top of that we have the what you've just talked about with death and so on that comes into the security aspect of this um how can we can we like well trust and security can i trust the agent um with not just my command, but also maybe pairs command in the event of something happening with um, to me. It, it does sound like there's a whole new school of learning here that we have to really pay attention to. Uh, but are you saying that this is something that UXers really need to get on top of and, uh, and learn more about now? Yes, I believe so um, for a couple of reasons. One is that examples of agent of tech are popping up in many places. Like obviously once I sort of put these goggles on and I started to look for them, I'm able to identify them certainly more than other folks. Um, and, and it's cropping up more. And I think the reason it's cropping up more is it's the natural evolution of user-centered design, right? We've been working for decades to get the maximum effects for our users with the minimum amount of effort. And well, having the product or the service do the thing accomplishes that as best as possible. Mm. Um, the, there, there is, as we talked about earlier when we were talking about the categories of artificial intelligence, um, one other category, which is assistive, um, which is another type of AI, uh, narrow AI that designers may be working with. Um, and that is different. That does entail a lot of what we learned before. What are the affordances, the constraints, the controls, the mappings, mm. all those sorts of things. And there, I think there are four categories where assistive is the right technology. Uh, there's your job. I think, and I don't think we have a, there, there should be a trolley problem for this, where you've heard of people who get a job and then farm that job out overseas for yeah. cheaper, and they just literally sit back and rake in the money. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, and I don't think anyone says that that's an ethical way to handle it. Um, so I believe that your job is going to be something where you need an assistive technology, whether you're a surgeon um, or a baseball pitcher or uh, you know, an interaction designer. There's art, which is akin, right, which is something that you want to be doing and that you want to be doing well. Um, So you don't want to push that off to an agent. Um, We certainly have skills acquisition, where if a kid is learning to drive, for instance, um, if we still have driving cars, or if you're trying to learn a new sport uh, or learn a new recipe, those are going to want to be assisted because it's it's helping you by being a scaffold to the new knowledge that you want. Um, and oh rats I said four at a big busted because I can't remember the fourth one <laughs> it's, uh, it's art, it's your job, it's skills acquisition ah, I'll have to look it up um, but anyway so yeah. uh, your question was do uh, designers no you know actually I, I won't tell you and then people will be really interested in seeing me talk and keep people <laughs> wanting more um, but I think in the future if uh, aer- uh, artificial narrow intelligence is going to um, be the default for which we design then for every project, you're going to have to decide, it, should this be an assistive technology? Mm. Should this be an agent of technology? And then go. But that said, 
I think we've got a lot of really good tools for designing uh, assistive tech, assistive AI. Mm -hmm. um, and the, our new challenge as, a, as an industry is to figure out what to do with this other narrow artificial intelligence. Mm. Yeah, I recently saw a, a TED Talk uh, by Oscar Schwartz uh, about poetry created by computers. And the dilemma there was that people could be moved by a piece of poetry that was really well articulated. But when they found out that it was created by, by a computer, uh, they were creeped out. Uh, yeah. so, so I think that that must be one of the big challenges in all this, that making it, <laughs> uh, well, not creep you out in the sense that it's, you're thinking that you're interacting with a human because it's that good. But then it does something, then you realize, oh, my God, I, I'm not talking to a human. <laughs> you, you, you need to be upfront about what you're doing, and people need to understand and get into it, this with an open mind, probably. Well, yeah, even that you don't want something that can't – you don't want to connect to something that can't really connect. It's the philosophical zombie problem, mm -hmm. right? It, if it looks and behaves like a problem, passes the Turing test in every sense of the word. Um, but, in fact, it doesn't have the same humanness that I have. Then it, it does feel like betrayal. Exactly. Or, or, or not, yeah. not betrayal, that's well, worse, because you know somebody had to create that algorithm. Um, you might be betrayed by them. Um, but just like the, you've been led down this sort of primrose path, mm -hmm. this empty thing that looked really beautiful but had mm -hmm. no ultimate meaning. Uh, you guys are actually hitting on the other project that I'm working on in the background. We should talk about sometime uh, about the role of randomness in uh, generation Um it's a Ooh. favorite topic of mine, but okay. a oh. giant regression. <laughs> okay. uh, we, can, we, can, we can save that for another day. Hmm? It does well, seem like everything is moving in this direction now, because I was reading two articles, irrespective of that, that we were going to interview you today. I, I saw two articles just yesterday about uh, this uh, robot lawyer that was uh, helping people with traffic tickets, with parking tickets. Oh, in yeah, I read that same one. <laughs> and uh, digital medical diagnostics, that m machines are doing a better job than humans at, at uh, diagnostics now. Uh, when it comes to diseases, which is really interesting as well. So so we won't have jobs in the future, basically. Well, that's a, another big yeah. cultural question that we have mm -hmm. to face uh, in, in, you know, as we start to include a lot more artificial intelligence in our lives. Humans uh, aren't the best at everything that we have had to do in the past, mm -hmm. and we're going to have to sift out um, what we want to give and should give computers, even at the cost of a little bit of ego, uh, and what we are really good at, and then answer the other questions about, okay, well, um, if <laughs> computers are good at 99% of things, um, and we still want to do some of those things, what do we do as a culture? Mm -hmm. um, and it's a fascinating one that um, th all, this topic is going to necessarily raise. Yeah. So what will people <laughs> coming out of your workshop, what will they be able to do? Well, I certainly think what we want to be able to do is to first expose folks to this way of thinking. Certainly listening to this podcast might be well if I was persuasive enough, um, but also to get your hands on it, to take an existing problem and then try to rethink that problem from being a tool to being an agent uh, and touch a little bit with all of those scenarios that I talked about, um, both setup and um, giving a hood to look under uh, a launch button, what does it mean to monitor, or what does it mean to, for the system to gracefully degrade when it fails? All those things um, begin to get a lot more meaning, not when you hear them, but when you try them yourself. Okay. Uh, we're actually going to be moving into our question session, which is something new we're doing on UX Podcast. Oh, we're ending okay. our interviews with, uh, with questions that we James will have two questions for you, I will have two questions for you, and you have to grade these on a seven-point scale. And you have to grade them. <laughs> You're not allowed to comment on them. We can, you can comment on them after we've asked all four of them. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And wait, what, am I, what, what is the grading scale? One to one seven. To seven. <laughs> no, I mean, but what does one mean and what does seven mean? Ah, good, ah that's a good question. Good question. <laughs> uh, seven, you agree the most. Uh, one, you agree the least. Oh, got it. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah well, seven's most, one, yeah, yeah. one's least or yeah. less. Yeah. Okay, that I least agree with. Okay, got mm -hmm. it. You'll, you'll tell, you'll tell, when we read the questions, mm -hmm. you'll, you'll get it. So my, I could start off with, because mine's related to what we were just talking to. Uh, on a <laughs> so scale, mine's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> on a scale of one to seven, how afraid should we be of artificial intelligence? <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to let me uh, comment. Okay, okay, okay. Um, oh, guys, that's so mean. Um, <laughs> I'll, say, I'll, say, I'll say three. But that's going to entail some conversation. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, I'll I'll throw one at you now then. So, on a scale of one to seven, how good can I expect um, a agentive a, a gen- a a technology to catalogue my music collection for me? Uh, seven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, ah, six. <laughs> six. Six. Yep. Okay. Uh, on a scale of one to seven, how important is it for UX professionals to understand agentive technology? Five. And this my, here's my last one. I think this is the one that Per was inferring to yeah. when he said about not being connected to what we're talking about. So, on a scale of one to seven, how do you rate Star Wars The Force Awakens? <laughs> uh, two. Ooh! Ooh! You see, no... Oh! That was the answer. This, this whole thing about not talking about... No, not discussing them, it's kind of... What? <laughs> No, I actually love the framework because it's like it forces me to pre-think what, uh, how that discussion is going to go, and obviously changed my answers during the middle of it. No, oh, those were great, <laughs> but yeah, they all bear some discussion. Hmm. Do you want to comment on one of them before we wrap up? Well, uh, I think you guys want to know my opinions on Star Wars. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so. I gave it a two partially because I'm just thinking about it from my own personal enjoyment, um, which is that I had already anchored to episodes four through six, and episode seven was such a retread of four, mm-hmm. um, and that that I didn't think it added much to the canon. It camped way too much on our pre-existing love of the characters. It gave us a few new things, a few great new twists. Um, and certainly I, I love a lot of the choices that Abrams made. Uh, but but I, don't need to, I didn't need to see it. I've already seen that movie. And I thought it was pretty good the first time. Yeah, I can. Yeah. I can see. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can see what you've done there. Mm. Yep, and I. I probably would knock a point off as well for that, but I don't think I'd get down to two. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. And the other thing, I was going to give it a little bit higher, but then I shifted to oh, well, answer for Chris because I think what Abrams needed to do culturally was to tell the world, I will be responsible with this beloved world. Mm. Right. One through three just made us realize. That Lucas should not be in charge of his own world. <laughs> right? And Abrams was saying, no, it's cool, guys. I've got this and you can trust me. Mm. And I think that was a first important step for him to take sort of culturally um, because we had lost faith. Mm. Um, and I'm really looking forward to 8 in 2017. Isn't that when it's coming out? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you're right. It's, yeah. Um, because I think Abrams will mm. say, okay, now that I've gained your trust – we're going to go for a little ride. And that's the one I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. And that, that actually does ties back into the topic and is interesting because now we're talking about the building trust thing again. And if we see the entire Star Wars mm. um, movie collection as an, an artificial intelligence, it's now trying to you know, reassure us and learn and, and get better next time. Wow, that's fantastic, James. <laughs> yep, I think you pulled it back. That's really nice. <laughs> it's been... Absolutely excellent talking to you again. Yes, as always. And looking forward to seeing you in in Portugal as well. Yeah, we will see you there. Right, there were a ton of references to movies in there. I just want to make listeners know that we'll be posting links to those in our show notes. I'll I'll try to listen back and and see if I can find all all links to them at IMDb. Good, that's uh, that's your homework then, Pat. Yeah. (laughs) And, and also, if anyone, we're bound to have got some of them slightly wrong. Um, I think we've said this disclaimer before when we've been talking to Chris that oh, I'm not as good at spontaneously remembering these references. But yeah. Yeah. but uh, always, that was so much fun actually hearing him talk about that subject. Mm-hmm. It was, it's really interesting and scary. I, I think it's a lot more scary than he let on. <laughs> It's it's oh, challenging. Can we use yeah. can we use challenging as well rather than scary? I mean, I, I think we. We're the ones that are going to let it be scary. Um, I, th- I think we can we can work on this to make it oh, reassuring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe then we can see that that's our job. It's our job as UXers to make this re- reassuring, because it's going to happen no matter what. Mm. And I think if we tie up mm. enough, if we tie up enough data points, then 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 maybe we can avoid, like I mentioned, maybe we can avoid some of the nasty scenarios because we've got a world full of data that will help us. Um, deal with that in a in a good way. 
Yeah. Uh, so let us know what you thought about the show. And if it's time for our listener show. You, listener, listener survey. Sorry. <laughs> listener show. Listener survey. See, now you're just gonna, we're going to get bad ratings now because yeah. you messed up the introduction to it. Yeah, no, we, we have a yearly survey that we do. Um, yeah. As good UXers that we are, we... we we need to have your feedback in order to, to adapt, learn, and grow, and, and have some feedback on what we're doing. Um, and we generally do this every March, every year. I can't remember the URLs. You have to say the URL. <laughs> um, well, do you mean you don't remember something from last year? It's really quite straightforward. It's uxpodcast.com slash survey. Ah, S-U-R- that makes complete sense. Yeah, S-U-R-V-E-Y. <laughs> it's also linked from the navigation, the menu, mm. um, on the website. Um, and on top of that, we will put it in the show notes for this show um, so you can easily access it from your device when you're mm. listening to it if you're in a position to actually use your device while listening. Don't let go of the wheel. And I'm sorry uh, beforehand for the poor design of the survey. <laughs> no, no, not, not the it's questions. It's all on purpose. Not, not the questions. You mean the no. look? The yeah, look I mean the it. look of it. Yeah. Yeah. We we didn't manage. To, this is a response. Well, we had to make it work in mobiles, so this is how it looks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but we really appreciate your yeah. feedback, and um, mm. it'd be nice if you just visited that and spent a couple of minutes filling it in. And uh, you all know you can find us pretty much everywhere as UX Podcast on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, Telegram, Telegram. You said Telegram. Yeah, Telegram. No, mm. yeah, we have a channel, a broadcast channel on Telegram. So if anybody uses Telegram, which is my new favorite chat client, uh, then uh, find us there as well. Yep. That would be cool if somebody actually joins. We've had one person join as of yet last <laughs> week. Two, two if you include me. Yes, that's true. Um, and um, you can also sign up for our backstage mailing list by um, direct messengers on Twitter or just email us um, your email. Well, just email us at backstage at uxpodcast.com and mm. I'll add you. I'll personally add you manually to the list. Ooh, that's your job. Yeah, that's my homework. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Mm-hmm.